0: Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to bleep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan.
1: So vote once, vote twice for Bill McKay, you middle class Hockeys. It's the movie show with Joel and Ryan. How what you for what? Vote twice for Bill McKay, you middle-class oh, yeah. honkies. That's
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make sure that got out there because it was a little obscured by the music.
1: Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. Yes. I, um, uh, welcome. Welcome to the movie show. I am Joel. And I'm Ryan. And we're super happy that you're joining us uh, once again this week for um, a little trip back into the super swinging 70s. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment, though um uh one thing real quick i I didn't i didn't tell you about this ryan so but i i i don't think you'll mind uh we do want to give a quick uh the movie show with joel and ryan get well soon shout out to a good friend of the show rob dunkelberger he's uh, spending a couple days in the hospital uh, getting some things looked at and hopefully he'll be back up on his feet very soon here um, but just he should. Yeah, I just want just want him to know that we're thinking about him. Hope he's doing better. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, um, we need him back. So you know, so so miracles of modern medicine. Yeah, fix Rob up and get him back
1: for us. We need him. Yep, he's too good to be uh, stuck in a hospital bed. Um, all right, we love you, Rob, um, and uh, hopefully by the frankly i know that you're behind a couple episodes and you need to catch up and so hopefully you're listening to this and you're already home yeah so um all right so uh the movie show with joel and ryan this week um so last week we uh decided to um uh put together and ryan had sort of gone down it you kind of went down a 1970s rabbit hole is that kind of what happened
2: sort of i had collected all these movies that that I had for a while and I hadn't seen any of them same with the 60s you could probably expect that show to come at some point but uh yeah so I I I, there wasn't it's hard to explain but there was an extra week in the year from how I normally schedule movies like suddenly this extra week showed up because of the Oscars getting pushed off and the NFL draft being like a week later and so all of that conspired to have this free week that i had to schedule and so i'm like i i went over several options but what i settled on was the 70s so i watched two or three of these those films we talked about and a couple we'll talk about tonight a day a night basically i just spent my time sort of catching up on them and checking them off my list and you know i have this whole crazy movie routine that is very satisfying to me (laughs) and and I knew there were really good movies in there. So, you know, I was saving them for a rainy day and suddenly like it just had bonus week of 2021. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, I'll do it now. I'll probably, that'll catch up with me at some point. And some things will have to be, I'll have to delete a week later because there aren't real bonus weeks on the calendar. It's more, yeah. it's more just where this week fell in the land, you know, amongst the landmarks of this time of year. Right. So yeah, I watched them all and we talked about most of them, but it was, it was awesome watching Scarecrow, watching, um, uh, they shoot horses, don't they? A few of these things just for the very first time. I, even though I had a a pretty decent idea of what they were, was super rewarding. It was really strange. You don't get to go back and watch, you know, you don't get to go back and watch stuff like that for the first time ever again. It's sort of neat. It's weird that I hadn't seen some of them, but it's sort of neat that I hadn't because my, a a lot of the films we talked about last week and plenty of them this week were. it's cool to see them when your maturity level sort of is at a stage where you can appreciate them best.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. I think a lot of those
2: smarter films from the eighties even, but definitely from the seventies where they were just making a sort of different kind of film, like, You can see those when you're a kid and they can make an impression and that impression sort of stays with you. And then if you check them out through the out the years or even if you just think back on them, like they grow with you sort of, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But just, you know, being an old guy who longs for some sort of nostalgia in that way and then to be hit with this quality, super quality storytelling was even the even the sillier ones you know even the big war movies and the silly epics that aren't 70s really at all and the way they mm-hmm. feel were were great in in that way and that i could appreciate them for what they were and compared to a lifetime of watching other movies of that kind like it was right. cool so yeah
1: uh, i would agree with you yeah that was a big thing um some of the movies I, I watched a couple that we talked about um last week uh because it was the it was that same sort of thing the last time i had seen them i had you know some of them probably were like college that i probably watched for a film class or something mm-hmm. and um uh or others you know and others were just like oh yeah i think i've seen that or you know or you know and and some of them from my childhood that like my dad decided to watch on a Saturday afternoon. Um, But yeah, so it was nice to sort of revisit a couple of those Um, and, and same with same with this week, this week uh, we have a bunch of movies here. Um, Some of them, uh some of well for me personally some of them i have never i haven't seen and some of them i haven't seen for a very long time
2: yeah unlike but- last week's yeah. list there's four of them or so on here that i've never that i still haven't seen that you got on the list so yeah i'll be yeah. interested to hear about those
1: right a couple of them and we'll get to them a couple of them i was not able to are not they're not available to watch unless you own um unless you and like they're the kind that there's they're available they're not even available on blu-ray they're available on on the, dvd, some old, DVD. Old, old dvds or yeah. some of them you can even still find vhs tapes of these um yeah. so but i think they're worth mentioning because they're they're once they do become available uh i think they would be Were hopefully they'll be hopefully someday they will become available because they're um some really fun fun films for sure um all right well why don't we why don't we jump to it ryan okay why don't we get on into taking a trip back to the super cinema of the 70s
2: They're Out There, movie show with Joel and Ryan listeners, the people making funky, rights-free R&B and soul music. That Those guys it. are awesome. Whoever made that one.
1: Uh, what is that one? That called? That is, uh, it, it, well, it's called everybody, Everybody's Party. Everybody's Party. I like that, too. I believe too. that's what it is. Instead
2: uh-huh. of Everybody Party, it's called Everybody's Party.
1: Well, let me just double check here. I no, that's true.
2: I know that because I put. Uh, the...
1: Yep. No, everybody's party. BJ Block <laughs> and Don Pemberton. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, rights free music website that I found. But we, we appreciate it. We put. We
2: still we, want to. It's just what we I needed think. was some cool rights free songs, and that one hit the mm-hmm. spot.
1: Um. All right. So uh, first up. Um, we are going to go with, <laughs> uh, this is a movie I haven't seen, but I love the poster. It's a very stern looking George C. Scott. <laughs> um, and, uh, it is 1971's The Hospital.
2: Yeah. This is written by Patty Chiesky who wrote yeah. Network. So even though the, the, the poster does look like, um, you know that George C. Scott's just going to yell at you the whole time, and he he does some yelling a little bit, but it's it's a weird, it's an absurd, zany thing like like Network is. It it it's it's about a a week in the life of a place that just goes completely off the rails into craziness, and
1: um, you know what it's not. You know what you know what George C. Scott he might do a little bit, but not a lot of in this one.
0: You wanted to know about the man in cell 11. Stretch your memory. What was he wearing when they brought him in? Do you recall? That was quite some time ago. Was he dressed like a priest? Like a priest? Were there any signs of injuries, blood, lacerations? That would be in the file. It is not in the file! It is not. Thank you,
1: George C. Scott.
2: It is not in the file. Um. Yeah, that's another guy in a hospital of a different sort. This <laughs> hospital is a, kind of a lot like that one, actually. It is sort of full of crazy people and big personalities to, to uh, man, Manhattan Hospital. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's hard to explain you guys. I don't know. If you've seen Network, you sort of know what I mean. I mean, it starts out, it feels like a straight story. And it takes enough of the situation straight that, that – that you can really start adding, throwing in weird stuff and, and it, and it doesn't make you just, it doesn't repel you from the story. It just keeps getting more and more intriguing. Uh, lovely Diane Riggs stars in it with them. And there's this great uh, parade of character actors, very memorably, uh, Richard Dysart, Richard Dysart's, was on LA law for years. He was the senior partner on that show. Mm -hmm. And he's just in the seventies cinema and early eighties cinema. He's, he's just in tons of stuff. Yeah. And
1: he's all over the place.
2: And he's, he's, he's great in stuff. And especially when he gets to go a little over the top, you know, like in the thing, he gets to kind of let loose and be in a crazy (laughs) horror movie. And, and in this film, he, he gets to just, he just has this growing panic that turns into mania at one point, and it's 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 sad to watch, but it's really fun watching an actor doing that, mm-hmm. um, especially one that's such a cool like customer early early going in the film. Um, basically, that I mean, it, it's a whole bunch of things. It's there's not a real narrative strung together. If there is one, it's that somebody. St- People are dropping dead in a hospital, which isn't that weird. So no one's thinking too much about it until and not
1: the, not of patients and not of patients. It's well, of patients too,
2: but that that's the thing. They're the red herrings. It's the these doctors that start dying mm-hmm. and of really weird circumstances, and one of whom is really really young. And and it it's I don't want to sell it as a mystery because that isn't what it is. But it it's. The the reason it turns out that that's happening is one of the craziest reasons you will ever hear, and you know it's urban. It's what Patty mm-hmm. writes best. It's this urban smart people madness, but they're they're surrounded by this madness, just trying to sort of hold things together, or they're they come to the party already mad, and something happens that makes them lift off into the stratosphere of madness you know Mm -hmm. something inspires them to just go totally crazy and uh, it like uh like like you know the i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore right right that this movie has that kind of thing going on too and there are people that are trying to solve that like it's a problem and there's people who are trying to exploit it for money or you know it, it it takes all kinds and it's a it's a it's a weird film but it's pretty great actually i was i'd never seen it and i was pretty impressed with it yeah and i'm glad i didn't there's another one where it's like i saw network when i was a kid and i could barely handle what it was i, I again it left an impression so that mm-hmm. then you read about it and you, it kind of becomes something different as you grow up but this film if i looked at it and thought it was like uh, you know, a, a serious hospital drama and got what this, I wouldn't, I'd have been, I, as a kid, I wouldn't have been able to handle that. So, right. I right. D- sort of did see it at, at a perfect time because I could have very much appreciate what it was this time. So,
1: um, for someone who hasn't seen it, just a real question. The reason why all these people start dying, I just want to make sure it's not because of dolphins, right? The dolphins <laughs> <No>. are <laughs> In this talking. case,
2: in this case, it is not because of dolphins okay. putting, putting, uh, Ocean mines underneath their hospital beds <laughs> at oh. that that blow up uh, yeah. politicians. It Although it's it's it just isn't quite as weird as that. Nothing is quite as weird as Buck Henry's script for Day of the Dolphin, but but it's almost as weird as that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so
2: be warned. It's it's it mm. rises almost to that level. Yes.
1: <laughs> um all right so uh next up also from 1971 uh and i and, and also with george c scott yeah yeah that's why and, they're together the other yeah. george
2: c scott movie of 1971
1: um george c scott appears i think he appears maybe one more time in this list here Um he, but anyway he was uh, a busy
2: guy in the 70s he was a oh very goodness, very busy yeah. leading man and it did a lot of really interesting films some of which i still haven't seen you know yeah so.
1: Um, and this one is, uh, not a movie about Istanbul turning to Constantinople, It is not, but it is called, they might, Be it is not. not, it is not about any, no, this, uh, <laughs> he, you know what he, he, this one is a Sherlock Holmes movie, but it's not a Sherlock Holmes movie and er, not about Sherlock, not about Sherlock Holmes. That's correct. Um, yeah. So this one, uh. little bit of trivia on this one uh, you didn't give the
2: name yet oh
1: did i not i know i said it's they might be giants oh yeah they might be giants um and it is a uh this one was written as a play it uh it premiered in london but never came to america and Hmm. then um because he uh the writer james goldman just never felt like he got it right on stage and so then they tried it for film for screen
2: it feels like a play in many ways. Hmm. Um, it, it expands greatly near the end of it, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, about, a, a, a asylum patient who believes he's Sherlock Holmes. And he's very, very clever played by George C. Scott and his doctor played by Joanne Woodward. um, You know, is trying to talk him through it. And it's about all these different mental patients that they come across. And it's about how Sherlock, as sort of a natural leader and as a guy who sees mysteries and conspiracies everywhere, rallies this whole crew of institutionalized folks to his to his aid in solving what the crime or the whatever itself never seems terribly clear but they they go on this adventure together and this this psychologist gets sort of caught up in it mm-hmm. um it's really fun she she you know there's this great scene where they they have this long se- session together counseling session and she starts to try and humor him a little bit and he just he he's not having he's like don't patronize me i know you don't think i'm sherlock holmes like he, he's too okay. clever for that and it makes him a really right. complicated patient <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in a way that you'd think Sherlock would be. It's just a it. It's very seventies in its sort of outlook of uh, you know, of life and stuff, and and the furnishings and the these apartments and stuff. But it's it really is a light entertainment. Truly, it it, it I don't know what the playwright intended. Mm. There's lots of m- metaphorical meanings and things in it. There's some evaluation of the just the whole you know um evaluating mental health process of the time but it's mostly just wouldn't it be neat if some clever charismatic guy thought he was sherlock holmes and and everyone went on an adventure together like in a grocery (laughs) store (laughs) it's like it's it's fun it's it's meant to be fun and kind of heartwarming and uh, and and almost romantic and it kind of is i think uh joanne woodward has very Mixed feelings about the film because her character is—I really think—is where the film falls down. And she, Woodward is, you know, spectacular actor, really, really good. And the material doesn't—the material doesn't stick with her in a way that is very meaningful, uh, which is a shame. So, mm-hmm. I, if the playwright was struggling with it, maybe that was it. She happens to be in real life. She happens to be named watson so yep
1: mildred watson and (laughs) and is he and is he sherlock holmes he's not well
2: don't spoil
1: it maybe he (laughs) is joel where's (laughs) your sense of
2: it in the file (laughs) it's in the file check out the movie and you can decide for yourself but that that's where the film let me down i was like wow she just you know she just sort of What's interesting about movies like this is that tension between two different people and different philosophies. And hers sort of dissipates and disappears as the film goes on. And that doesn't seem really – it's not that she doesn't go along with him. It's it's that her skepticism, even though she never really believes him, sort of disappears. And she Mm kind of becomes one of his followers, which – I think weakens the story, but that's, that's pretty much it. it it's very fun. It's mm-hmm. everything they've said. It was throughout the years. It's a fun, goofy movie
1: mm-hmm.
2: of which they didn't, you know, that was the exception to the rule in 71. I have to say, when you look at the big hit movies of the era, the right. fun, the fun night out on a town date movie was like, not <laughs> the kind of films they were making. So Right.
1: So this it was, you'd go to a thriller for a day, you know, like some sort of, yeah, there are lots of, lots of. It,
2: so this really is a yeah. different, it, it's a different kind of thing in a, in a, maybe in a more modern way even. Yep. So. Cause this is the kind of story they would do today. I, I think. Right.
1: So the next film, um, I actually, I meant to ask you about before we, before we started, cause I ha- was having difficulty locating it anywhere. Uh, the Spitfire Gang.
2: Spitfire Gang, that's out on Blu-ray. Maybe it's not streaming anywhere.
1: Well, I mean, I literally couldn't find it even, I couldn't find it on IMDb or anything.
2: Really? Yeah. Did I, oh, maybe I spelled it wrong or got the name wrong. I've only watched this the one time. Let's look it up. Maybe it's not Spitfire. It's, 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 which would make it hard to find. Sorry for the loud typing. My <laughs> yeah. my keyboard is right next to my, uh... yeah, it's, dude, it's going to be called something totally different. So okay. I probably typed it in wrong for you because okay. that doesn't feel like the right name. Spitfire Gang, well, that'd be a cool name for a movie, huh? That,
1: that, well, yeah. I mean, it has been the title of a name, but like for, uh, there was a movie in the 20s and the 50s called the spitfire gang and i'm like wow that doesn't fit into our well and
2: now because normally i'd be able to say oh no i meant this but now because i got the wrong name in my Mm. head i can't fix it but it's going to be a totally different name you wait and see
1: Uh, but something
2: that sounds like that you know
1: and not the spitfire grill
2: no spikes not even spitfire the spikes game 1974 the spikes yep lee marvin plays a character named spikes
1: the spikes gang there we go yeah that's there total
2: i mean that's not me thinking it's called that i was a total typo mm-hmm. at the time sorry about yep.
1: that um all right well here we go in case for editing purposes nah, um so the ne- let next let everybody stuff... st- <laughs> <laughs> sorry everybody you got a little uh you know, a little bit about how the sausage is made um, all right, 1974. Can all suffer
2: through that. It was only took a minute to figure out. Yep. Uh,
1: 1974 <laughs> is the Spikes Gang, Lee Marvin. Um, yeah, Ron Howard in, in this one, yeah. Charles
2: Martin Smith.
1: Oh, yeah, look at them.
2: Yeah, hey, so, um, Ron Howard and Charles Martin Smith, famously from, um, from, uh, American Graffiti. I mean, Ron Howard, obviously, is famous for everything. But it, but uh, but the, those two guys are famously paired up also in American Graffiti, which I think came out before this. So this is a little like the people from St. Elmo's Fire like, going back to high school for three years and all those other crappy movies that came after. Um, because they're, a, they're aged down quite a bit in mm-hmm. Spike's Game, which is strange. You see them graduating high school and <laughs> the year before. In the pretty much the big one of the biggest films of the '70s, and then here they're kind of kids who are running away from home, and they start stealing to like uh, it's basically to live, to eat, to just to have money and stuff because it's kind of a, it's a western,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and they hook up with this dude, uh, play you know played by Lee Marvin, and whenever you've got Lee Marvin in a movie, I mean it's you know. He's a commanding presence, and he he takes them under his wing, and they do a bunch of crimes together, and they camp together, and they learn how to shoot people. And um, <laughs> Char- Charlie Martin Smith. I don't know if you guys know him. I, if you don't, it's important that you do. If you don't know him, he's a he. Especially during this era, but even as he aged in things like Starman and Untouchables, he's. Yep has an innocence about him and, you know, he's like an innocent, it's hard to explain, but whatever you layer on that guy, cause in real life, he's this sort of wicked humorous, sort of kind of amazing dude. Um, but he, in this film, you know, he just, some guy runs up and frightens him while he's robbing a bank and he just kills him. And it's, it's that kind of movie. It's like, if you, and it's great that it's that way. It's like, this is going nowhere. Good. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is all Mm going to break down. This is, they're not going to keep doing this. You know, it's got that fun Western outlaw kind of feel to it, but you can just tell the storytelling is very straight with you. Just in even just the way it feels the atmosphere of it, that that this, this can't end well, this sort of life, you know, it takes that part of it very seriously. If that makes sense. It just, Mm -hmm. it, you know so even though it's a pretty light movie where you got the grizzled old veteran you know teaching the plucky young kids stuff um uh, the main kid in it i don't know from really anything else what's his name that Barry actor grimes yeah huh? Barry grimes yeah Barry grimes. He, he he's good in it it's the three mm-hmm. of them and he's the one that has to kind of be the he's the one that runs away for a reason and he's the kind of tortured soul of the film. And whereas Howard and Charlie are just, what are we, where are we going? What are we doing? Mm-hmm. Which Alma honestly makes it, you know, even worse. Although Ron Howard character sort of split the difference. He's not, he's not a tortured soul of a character, but he's clever and he thinks their way out of things throughout. So he kind of keeps the thing going, but, you're all just the whole movie. You're like, just go home, you know, to go home. Right. This, Here, <laughs>
1: I'm just real quick. You're Gary don't, Grimes don't, don't
2: go to Mexico. Go, go home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but this, uh, the main kid in it, he really believes he he's, there's no home for him anymore. And he's propelled by that. And that's makes it sad. It's a, it truly mm-hmm. is a tragic story that has a lot of fun stuff along the way. So that's interesting.
1: Um, Gary Grimes, just real quick here. uh, I mean, he burst on the scene in Summer of '42, uh, another really great flick that maybe will make another list at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, and then he was he was essentially done with his acting career by '76. Interesting.
2: That happens sometimes.
1: Yep, he did one TV show in 1983, one episode of of Matt Houston in 1983. (sighs) But other than that, um, essentially, well, he did one episode of Gunsmoke in '67. But so from '60, so he had you know, but his seventy one, yeah. But his 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 whole
2: list is rather sparse, and even though it's punctuated with some interesting things, it's Mm -hmm. he kind of yeah, that happened. I mean, well, it happens there, you look back, we were talking last summer about Jaws 2, and some of those kids are still working today, and some of yeah. them, none of them just only did Jaws 2, but but some of them just had this career trajectory where it was like, you did stuff at the time, you had an agent, they got you on these this show or that show, and this thing or that thing, mm-hmm. and then you just poof, you just kind of stuck, you went, you know. It happens in the theater, right? It happened to me, kind of, on a small scale. You just sort of don't do that stuff anymore. <laughs> right. right. It's, it's it, because life intervenes, you know. You fall in love with somebody. You move to Phoenix. You just get tired of doing it. You know, You get tired of casting calls. If you're a woman in particular, you just don't like that anymore. You kind of don't subject yourself to it anymore, really. Yeah, and when the and when they stop calling you, you're done. So it's or sometimes people are just like oh, okay, I'm going to college now or whatever. That was like the kid who plays uh, kid in Batman Begins played Joffrey in uh, Game of Thrones. He just mm-hmm. I'm gonna go be a scientist. It's been fun. <laughs> See yeah. ya. yeah, you know, Yep. It, so it's sometimes it's not circumstance. It's you decide eh, this. That was neat, but now I'm gonna go do this instead. So, it's good. The kids good with horses, like good with guns. It's all has a great deal of verisimilitude. It's called the Spikes Gang, not the Spitfire Gang. I, I wish I could go back and rename it for them, but
1: yeah i so i should have uh i should i didn't even think because we both were kind of like oh it's two thirty we got to get going um <laughs> uh I, I should have thought of that before we started whatever spikes game uh, it,
2: it's good if you like yeah. westerns it's good if you like family movies that have some it, rather some intense content it's not like a intense r-rated movie or anything but it it means business once it gets going so you just but it's still very, very entertaining. And this bits that were sad were very sad. I, it, it was good. And, and Lee Marvin's really, really good in it because he's really seen from the kid's perspective. And, and you just, you have mm-hmm. to see it to see what I mean. He just, just really even keeled and very, he's a guy who was them a long time ago and is an old, older man now. And has, is still going and you've had, he's had to make some ruthless kind of awful decisions over that time to survive. I imagine. And it, it it's, it's cool. It's cool how they learn yeah. those lessons throughout the movie. So.
1: Um, all right, next up Jeez, is... that's only
2: movie number three. We got, I got to talk faster. So.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh... <laughs> Some of these we're going to, you know, some of these coming up, uh, like I said, uh, we're going to be able to kind of fly through a little bit because they're not really available to watch. And I haven't seen them for many years. Yeah. So um, uh, but next up, we have Juggernaut, Richard Lester film uh, from 1974. Two Richard
2: Lester films in a row here. We've talked about mm-hmm. Juggernaut. We set its name during the mm-hmm. disaster the movies Master. and we brought it up quickly in as it relates to Ian Holm. Uh, on our Ian Holm countdown, which it didn't make. But Juggernaut's an amazing movie. It's about an ocean liner, the Britannic, that uh, mm-hmm. has a bunch of bombs placed on it. And it's about Richard Harris plays this head of this bomb squad who gets helicoptered out there. And the, they're in the middle of a storm, so it's all very dramatic, and they can't get the people off into the... the um, you know, the escape boats or whatever you call them. Um, mm-hmm. which is weird because wouldn't a storm be exactly the time where you would need to <laughs> do that sort of thing. Right. It's just like, Oh, we got, you know, we're going down in the storm, but don't get on the lifeboats cause it's too stormy. So I guess you're just going to die here now. It's just weird. It's weird. The justifications they felt they had to come up with to keep people on the boat. Um, you know, these days it'd be like I can see everything that's happening, and if you try and it make one person escape, you know that there, there's a scene in every hostage movie where some poor person has to bite it because they're kind of not following the terrorist rules. This movie, like, it, it bends over backwards to try and think of reasons why you shouldn't do that stuff instead of just having the bad guy have a little more control over what's going on.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But it's good, man. Ian Holm, uh, Julian Glover, Anthony Hopkins, all are in this same scene together. It's a stunning scene full of, like, this immense talent. And what's one of my favorite moments in the movie is Ian's, like, explaining everything. He plays a guy who works for the ocean liner, you know, and he's standing amongst all these cops. And and he's like, well, and at the end of it, he goes... And he's very he very twitchy and weird. Ian just loads this dude with all kinds of uh, mannerisms and things that are not necessary, but are still fun to watch in the hands of a capable actor like him trying to make an impression. And uh, whereas Anthony Hopkins just stands really still and barely makes a facial expression and entire thing sides. He's Which, I don't know, again, it it works great. It's perfect. Like, it's this perfect cocktail of how British actors work, right? And Ian gets to the end of his thing. He's like, and I just want to say I'm really, we really appreciate the cooperation of the the police and all this stuff. And, And Hopkins, they cut to him and he's smoking a cigarette and he's like, yes, well, my wife and two children are on board the Britannic. And he kind of walks away without even frowning and home they cut to him and he goes <laughs> it's huge,
1: <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. but it's
2: it's dick lester you know it's a guy who made hard days night and superman yeah. three so it's
1: and
2: yeah. so and yeah exactly and uh, we talked about him last week the the uh the three musketeers films from around yes. this era yeah so it's cool. The hugeness doesn't harm the film at all. It's a goofy hostage movie. Um, the, the, the hospitality officer, I can't remember the actor who plays him, but his attempt to entertain everybody while they're waiting for these bombs to either explode or not explode is very fun. The, the group of passengers are unusually philosophical, you know, and Richard Harris is just, he's into it you know, when he, again, when he's drunk and doesn't know what he's doing, he's an interesting actor, but when he's into it and focused and wanting to do well, he's really as good as anybody of his generation. So this is a film where you could feel it. He showed up and the bombs like there's all this sort of the the movie was famous at the time. I don't. This doesn't make a big impression on me when I'm watching it. But they had these cameras where they could get inside the bombs, and you could see all the inner workings of them and stuff, which is really cool. But it, I mean, I, by today's standards, mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not sure how cool it is. But that's when I go back and read. Sure. Older people today like writing reviews and stuff about it on Amazon or whatever. They're all like, and you're like inside the bomb and all that. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I see Whoa. that. Yeah,
1: I was going to say you probably didn't see anything like that up until
2: that was the uh, it, the photographic sort of innovation of the film. Mm-hmm, so Juggernaut's mm-hmm.
1: fun, cool. Uh, a couple of years later, Richard Lester makes Robin and Mary. So Omar
2: Sharif is in it. It's got this huge cast. Of oh yeah, to it. yeah. The you
1: the know. cast of Juggernaut is is yeah. I mean it's when we talked about when we did our disaster film, we, you know, the, all of these disaster yeah. films always had these giant casts and it, yeah. It's like Anthony Hopkins, Shirley Knight, uh, uh Freddie Jones, uh, David Hemmings. Uh, yeah. It's, Freddie, uh, another
2: actor, not afraid to throw it out there.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Um, so uh, a couple of years later, Richard Lester makes Robin and Marion, Um, which is uh, Robin as in Robin Hood, Marion as in Maid Marion. But this time they're a little bit older. A little bit. When you think about it. And have they gotten a little wiser? I
2: don't know. Uh, Certainly Little John did not get wiser.
1: No. Um,
2: no. Yeah. Sean Connery plays Robin returning from the Crusades as an older man. Mm -hmm. I assume the... I don't know, because he kind of returned from the Crusades, the Second Crusades, in the first place. So they just sort of t- tweaking the story a little bit. He's he, all Robin Hood's adventures happened before he went off to the Crusades this way, and he's been sort of disappeared. Marion played just lovely by Audrey Hepburn yeah. has joined a joined a convent, um, and then you got the crazy drunk guys to fill it out. Robert <laughs> Shaw played. Apparently, according to Denholm Elliott's, uh, daughter, you know, after his death, where she just started spilling the beans on all the movies (laughs) her dad had been in, uh, he's like, uh, you know, Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn, you know, she came out of retirement to do it. She'd been raising Mm -hmm. her family, um... Because Dick is a very lovely, friendly, polite English guy who, you know, is very persuasive. And Connery was like, oh, you know, you should do this. Conner- this was like Connery's post-Bond starring roles. They quickly mm. diminished to the point where he couldn't get work because he didn't have a lot of hits right. after Bond and, and – in a weird sort of David Caruso like way, like he got a couple big movies after he quit his big job and then, you know, they didn't make a lot of money. So it's like, all right, sorry. Mm -hmm. See ya. He, he, he required uh, like people's charity a a lot. You know, we talked about in Zardoz, he lived on John, in John Borman's guest room while he was shooting that just to save money.
1: Yeah. So,
2: so that's just right around the corner. Um, but he's great, great as an aged Robin Hood. Really, really great. In fact, I, it's one of my favorite Connery roles. Um, Hepburn's great. Uh, Robert Shaw as the sheriff of Nottingham is fantastic. Robert Ro- Robert knows not to. Unlike Jaws, where he just sort of takes over the movie when he's on screen, he he knows he gets that this guy the, the 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 joy of him is in his sort of the comfort he has with his power and his sort of snarky remarks before he cuts somebody down. He's a very cool customer in the film, which is great because, because there's some other over actors in it, the King Richard, the Lionheart is played by Richard Harris, uh, who is clearly inebriated in every scene that you see him. Mm -hmm. This is one where he's not taking it very seriously, but he still just starts shouting and goes crazy. And he's throwing servants around and, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it's it's yeah. a fun it's a fun kind of camp extended cameo by him at the beginning of the film and best of all probably is nicole williamson as little john man yep denholm elliott plays old will scarlet and there's some other recognizable faces but uh ian williamson Williams. as connery's sidekick and and it does a really nice job because again Nicole Williamson's another he's a crazy man and apparently those three guys in the same movie especially when Harris was around was like they were tough to control so yeah
1: yeah
2: Um but it was good it's fun it, it's, it is
1: it's a it is a really fun movie I like it's that ro-
2: it's very romantic it's almost a romance first that's all Robin's really concerned with he doesn't really want to get into politics and adventuring and all that Mm -hmm. he just wants to find the love of his life now that he survived the crusades somehow miraculously and wants to settle down in his castle and just be a guy and of course it it can't really work out that way the resolution to it is i've seen it three or four times and i'm always like I still don't really get what you guys are talking about. Right. Yeah. And I guess I, I think I never will. And you might not either, but I think it's something where you got to go. There's metaphor here and there's, you know, there's stuff working here that you got to look for that instead of trying same with juggernaut, you know, all the reasons mm-hmm. you can't leave the boat. It's like, just roll with it. Just don't get, <laughs> hum, don't get hung up on that stuff. Cause it's not really what the movie is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is an odd. I have to say, it's an odd ending. It's weird,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but
0: not uh, for
2: not for a seventies movie. But no, it, by today's standards, it's a it it would not get past one single studio executive, let alone sure. a boardroom full of them. I can assure you. Mm-hmm. So it's uh,
1: um, yeah. This the yeah. This is very yeah. I I would agree with you. This would not. Make, <laughs> this would not make. Um, one, I don't one think it's test, a bad
2: ending. Tonally, no, it's beautiful. No. The music's beautiful. It just, it's it, does, it doesn't bear scrutiny very well, mm-hmm. in my opinion, that's mm-hmm.
1: all. Um, all right, next up is 1971's A New Leaf, um, which this one it was uh, a new film for me. Um, but new for I me was, too, I'd
2: never heard of it.
1: Yeah, I was really intrigued by it um, as I was looking at some 70s films, um, trying to refresh my memory for this. Uh, I... I saw this one, um, written, directed, and co-starring Elaine May of Nichols and May. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, it is this weird of little
2: ishtar fame of is ishtar what our buddy fame. Michael would say. That's sort of, <laughs> that's sort of mean though, to bring up that whenever. But,
1: um, uh, yeah. And this is, um, this is a weird little romantic comedy. Uh, yeah. It, um, with Walter Matthau playing, uh, playing the, the, the lead and the, the main guy in it, who is this absolute, uh, he's a trust fund kid who's never had a job in his entire life. Like Arthur,
2: except on a slightly smaller scale.
1: Yep. And, and and he runs out of money and, (laughs) um, and, uh, and, and, you know, his, his, there's a great scene. I got a, the, the guy who plays his lawyer, um, i think it's who is uh shoot i think it's uh uh william redfield as his um as his um agent and that would
2: make sense i can't tell you because i haven't seen it
1: yeah as his lawyer and and he was like you you asked me uh because walter Matthau goes in he has the six thousand dollar bill that needs to be paid that that was you know that they said, this, you need payment on this. And um, he goes to his, uh, his lawyer and his lawyer's like, you asked me that you told me you wanted to live on $200,000 a year. And I told you, you had like, uh, you had 100 or like, or $90,000 a year. And I told you, you could not do this. And, and, and he just is explaining bankruptcy and Walter Matthau the entire time. Very, very, is, is very clearly listening, very clearly <laughs> listening. And then he goes, this bill needs to be paid. <laughs> this bill needs to be paid. And the, the lawyer's like, you, you don't have the money to, it's, it's, it's really great. And he, it's Walter Matthau really understated Walter Matthau. Uh, you know, I'm used to sort of seeing him. Um, it's
2: Well, it's fun when he takes, cause he's, uh, I saw this in a documentary the other day. I can't remember. I can't remember what movie it was, but it was after one of these movies where he was offered the lead role in something and he turned it down. And the, the casting agent who was doing the interview was like, I think Walter wanted to be a leading man, but he was scared to be a leading man. Like he, he knew his thing when he would show Mm -hmm. up as part of an ensemble and in a, in a supporting role because he was such a strong personality. But you watch these films, taking a Pelham one, two, three bad news bears, what you're describing in this, Mm when he, when he was the main character in a film, he, he really does play it straight and play it real. It's not that his humor or whatever isn't there. And this is is before he became an old man and just was in old man joke movies. You know, this, this era here, I, I think you see that time and time again from him. You see him really bring a lot of personal stuff to each part. And I think that, I think he knew he was a good enough actor to know to do that, but I think he, yeah. I don't think that was a super comfortable process for him, you know, well, which yeah. is why he kind of each after each one of these, he kind of runs back and does two or three of these other little sort of crazy guy parts.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? um, this one, yeah, he, I mean, he need what what's what works about his, you know, like you said, he wants to be a leading man, but he's not the 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 you know the the idea the plan for this guy is is he just needs to find a woman uh, who's incredibly rich and marry her nice. so that he can get back to his lifestyle. So it's like
2: is. a 18th century costume drama in that way.
1: C- kind of. Yeah. And he ends up meeting um, Elaine May's character. Who's uh, Henrietta. Uh, he play Walter Matthau as Henry and he meets Henrietta <laughs> and she is this botanist, who is completely oblivious to everything in the, everything in the world around her, except for her plants and stuff. Hmm. Um, but she's in. I don't think I've ever
2: seen Elaine May in like a major role. I've seen her pop up here and there and this Mm -hmm. and that, obviously, because she's got comedy performance credits up the wazoo from back in the day. But I think once she became a writer and got into the film industry, it was more Mm -hmm. behind the camera stuff. So is she good? This is,
1: uh, Is I mean, yeah, she's, she's really good. She's lovely. She's, um, She's just this kind of quirky uh, nerd of a woman um, uh, who's seemingly uh, we, and, and just just an innocent, a naive innocent, but in a really in a really winning, charming way. And and you know, and, and like like in a lot of things, you know, Walter Matthau's character thinks this is perfect. I can just sort of bowl right on over her um and and get everything and but she legitimately falls in love with with uh henry um, i'm I'm
2: totally getting this movie now i get this i know what this kind of movie is
1: yeah it's lovely (laughs) now and it's got it's got like this whole uh it's got a whole subplot where um like james james coco plays his uncle yeah i love
2: james coco
1: great scene between uh walter Matthau and james coco um more there's of a, a whole... more
2: of a Broadway actor than a film actor, but when he's in movies, he's so mm-hmm. fun.
1: There's a, there's a whole uh, plot line with um, Henrietta's lawyer and this whole cast of characters that works uh, that works in um, Henrietta's you know palatial mansion that she spends. We, like...
2: we don't need to know every plot yeah. line, though.
1: but so it's. I mean, it, it's it's really. Um, it's a weird little quirky film that's quite lovely, um, and and you uh, want
2: obviously you're invested and you want it all to work out for these guys, even though they came they got themselves into this situation based not really on them. Mm-hmm. Purest motives. I, that's cool. And that sounds not, fun. You know,
1: and I and I will say, you you don't. You know, it's not like after all, uh, after everything is said and done, Walter Matthau's character realizes he does love her. It's <laughs> right. not that. It's, not, it's yeah. a, but it. It is a very sad. You know, it's a satisfying romantic ending, but in a very quirky, weird way. Cool. Um, yeah. I, I I I had never seen it before. I'd never heard of it before, and I'm like, Elaine May wrote and directed. Where'd you watch it? Uh, where did I watch it? I, you know, I think I watched it on Pluto TV. Yeah. Um, which is a free, uh, yeah, a, a, a free streaming service. Um, Pluto. Yep. But, uh, um, all right. Yeah. So next up is 1977s. We're going to jump ahead a few years. Um, and, uh, and talk about Julia.
2: Yeah. And I'm only going to talk about Julia briefly. Julia is most famous for, uh, Jason Robards won the Oscar for playing uh, Eugene O'Neill in it, I want to say. The playwright. You'll have to look that up uh, for me. Dashiell
1: Hammett. Dashiell Hammett.
2: He played Dashiell Hammett in it. Oh, that's even better. (laughs) Sorry, they're not exactly the same guy. Um, Either way, he played a famous actual real-life actor. He's barely in the movie, and he won an Oscar for it. Um, It's Jane Fonda's story about how she goes on this trek to... um, is it Germany or Poland? Boy, I'm not, I shouldn't even have put Julie on the list. It's been so long since I've seen it.
1: Yeah. It, um, it it, is. um,
2: Read the synopsis so that I can not be just making up what it's about.
1: (laughs) Sure. It is. um, It's a Holocaust period drama. um, Yeah. And it, uh, it's about, the author uh, Lillian Hellman's um, uh, alleged friendship with a woman named Julia who fought against the Nazis in the years prior to world war two. Right. And
2: she just, she stopped, they stopped corresponding and it's is post world war two. And she, she kind of, she goes on this, she gets whisked away. She, She goes on this adventure essentially to find her and meets all kinds of weird people along the way and gets some help and, uh, has some people chasing her and stuff. It's not a thriller though, like it sounds. It's these are like literary people, and it's a rather subdued film. But it it's it's lovely. You know what I mean? It it it's it's a, it's a smart sort of investigation of these sorts of topics without all the sort of Holocaust and and um, you know without all the 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 histrionics that we bring to it. When we make a movie about this sort of subject, it would be full of flashbacks. It would, you get the whole horror of the thing. Like this is all with it. it, It's, you learn about this stuff, people's experiences through their conversations and through their, her interviewing all these folks, early role for uh, Meryl Streep and Lambert Wilson and, and a whole bunch of actors that are, you know, pretty commonplace in films today. Mm -hmm. uh all have little sort of supporting roles and it's pretty good i don't want to dwell on it too much since it's been a while since i've seen it but
1: yeah i gotta admit it's weird i've it's based i believe it's based on a true story
2: but i don't want to go that far
1: um yeah it's up for it was up for a gajillion awards it won for uh jason robards won vanessa redgrave won for best supporting actor i believe it Um, in a, in a, in what, uh, in it was picketed. Well, yeah, Star
2: Wars, Annie Hall. I mean, it would, obviously 77 was a loaded Oscars, but a very weird and diverse one. So it's, Mm -hmm. this is a film that got a lot of attention at the time because of its serious subject matter and because of its, you know, Robards, uh, Jane Fonda, you know, it just has this, this is the classy, Oscar bait movie of its era and it's not as good as its as its reputation from that era suggests but that's it's true it's considered one of those wow, how did this get all these awards and stuff Jason Robard's only in one scene you know what I mean mm-hmm. it's like people talk about it like you know annie holland i don't remember the other 77 movies but there were really high profile films that came from that year so this isn't one of them and right that part is rightfully so but it's still much much better than something you can simply dismiss so i kind of wanted to give it a little love
1: sure yeah um all right uh next up is um well gosh this movie um uh, such a good film, but it's been a very, very long time since I've seen it. Uh, the Goodbye Girl, nineteen again, 1977. Um, Neil Simon. The
2: first or the uh, second of the Herbert Ross directs Neil Simon movies, and I think largely the most popular. I think, is this also 77? Yep, this is 77. That's why they're there together, I guess, because there's no other mm-hmm. real connection. Um, uh, Goodbye Girls really uh, fantastic film again this is another this is the third of which assuming we can put a new leaf in this this category but this is a this is just a fun romantic movie about uh two people who get stuck renting the same apartment due to weird circumstances that i won't mm-hmm. really get into um and because they're both kind of desperate and because they're both nice enough folks they they sort of agree to share it and become roommates. This is really like a, a setup for a sitcom, and it has a very sitcom feel to it. Neil Simon writes, really, really fun. But his wife at the time, uh, the actor, was in a bunch of these films. What's her name?
1: Uh... uh, uh... We're talking about Marsha Mason.
2: Yeah, Marsha Mason. Sorry.
1: sorry, I was looking at something and I didn't quite catch your question. It's my sorry, favorite not...
2: Marsha Mason role. The guy's played by Richard Dreyfuss. It's mm-hmm. he's fantastic in it as well. Richard Dreyfuss is, you know, he can he can uh, he can really make your movie or he can really drag it screaming <laughs> to the ground. Yeah, and it, it all and it it's not really because of him. It's just because of the way he is. He's a unique cat. And. Um, He's great in it, and the two of them have this sort of lovely chemistry, as you all like to say out there in the world, that doesn't understand any sort of technical or uh, method acting techniques, you call it chemistry. Um, I think that really lives in this film and makes it. And the other star of the thing is the little, the teenage girl or whatever, the little girl. Mm-hmm. That, can't remember her, but she was in a handful of movies around Quinn, time. Yeah,
1: Quinn Cummings. She's great. She's yeah. great at
2: it. And it's all very Neil Simon dialogue y, and it has this great, just great mood and everything to it. And there's a lot of fighting and bickering and arguing, which can get on your nerves like really quickly if it's not just handled just right. And Herbert uh, gets that down, just like he did in uh, Secret of My Success, Sean. I remember that one. That's a Herbert Mm -hmm. Ross movie. Um, She does. Shauna, one of our favorite guests, not a fan of the show, so she won't hear that. So that's (laughs) that's no problem. (laughs) She's got two beagles and way too much going on in her life to be listening to us Um, each week. (laughs) (laughs) uh, But Herbert Ross, uh, what's the other Neil Simon one you really love? The Max Dugan Returns, another Jason Robards movie. These guys paired up on a bunch of films and they're all kind of great and but to me, this is the signature one. It's my favorite Marshall Mason performance, probably ever. So
1: yeah, I mean he uh, he he. I mean, uh, let's see, this is just a list of the Neil. So he does four in a row here: Chapter Two, The Goodbye Girl, California Suite, and I Oughta Be in Pictures.
2: Mm. And California Suite not so good, but, uh, but all those other ones are great.
1: Oh, he did the pl- he directed the play of he directed the play of chapter two, the play of I ought to be in pictures, and then directed the film of I ought to be in pictures. Uh, and then does Max Dugan returns. Um, yeah. So he, he, um, he and Neil Simon were attached at the hip for several years there. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. Um, okay. let you, have seen?
2: You've seen that, haven't you, Joel? Yeah. Goodbye girl. It's got oh, yeah. that great song, oh, David Gates from Brad. Goodbye. doesn't have to mean forever. I won't sing mm-hmm. it because. I don't want electro records come knocking down my door, but it, <laughs> it's a great song. Like it's, it just has all that fun stuff that movies like that used to have, you know, they didn't have 12 songs and 18 montages. They just had the one song that was written for the movie, you know, it, and it made an impression. It's like, I, I, sometimes I get bored with those stories, but sometimes I long for those days where the it really was about these folks and the setup, you know, you had to have it, but it wasn't even that important. It was about the fireworks that happened between people. It's fun. Right. So,
1: Right. Yeah. No, I love the goodbye girl. Um, All right. Next up is 1974. So this is quite a, quite a hard turn um, from uh, a lovely romance, uh, romantic comedy, Neil Simon, romantic comedy. Um, would that it be that Neil Simon wrote Death Wish, but he did not. <laughs> uh, uh, no, Death, Death Wish, nineteen seventy four, Charles Bronson.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. They, the the critic, the big criticism of Death Wish, well, other than that, people were all concerned that it would promote vigilantism, vigilantism and murders yeah. on the street, which it 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 actually did to some degree, to a small degree. Um, it it's funny watching a movie with that title that has that reputation w- with today's eye because it's a very quaint little movie. Bronson, unfortunately, is he's it's a fantastic performance by him. It's a shame that he is just ridiculously miscast because when he sees Charles Bronson show up in something, you really do expect him to just start killing people right away. Why do we need this elaborate sort of revenge, like psychological setup for Charles Bronson to start kicking ass? You don't need it. It, That's why we showed up to see Charles in a film at all. Mm -hmm. But he's great. He's this architect, sort of uh, urban planner type guy, you know, and he plays it. He plays it great. He's a good actor, but it's a stagey performance. And they don't, he wears these like orange tinted, uh, Robert Vaughn style glasses indoors, and it's like yeah. Michael Wimmer, the guy who directed, is who I'm not a fan of because he's one of the world class dicks of all the movies. But this is his best movie. We talked about him in our '70s horror thon back a couple years ago. If you really want to go hunt that one down, yeah. um, he made a film called The Sentinel that we talk about in there. To make what are you letting him wear those glasses for? I mean, it just makes him look like he's a sharpshooter already. Yeah. So there's just these decisions that were made that were wrong, but once he's out losing, you know, it's a story about a guy who this terrible thing happens to his family, and it really is terrible, and it's a movie that's clever enough that it's not about the guy getting revenge on the people who... who hurt him and took those lives from him, but he doesn't know who those are. We're never going to find out who those people are. He, you know what I mean? He gets, mm-hmm. he gets armed somehow by some weird coincidence and finds himself in facing a mugger while he has a gun on him that he would never have in his normal life. And he just it, like Indiana Jones, man, he just shoots the guy it, it, and it's, it's, it's inhuman and it's weird and cold, and it's not exciting, and you don't feel good when it happens, you know? Yeah. Bronson said, you know, he agreed to do the movie, like, the same reason he agreed to do all these violent movies that he did, because he thinks, he thinks anyone with half a brain will watch them, and even if they're entertained or they're not entertained, you can't not get the message that violence begets more violence. He believes that is part of these stories, and, you know, because he was a weird david carradine like sort of zen master guy he he was not the tough guy of his films and it's a shame that here he's trying to play a different sort of dude and it's just it's like a should have been steve gutenberg or something it should have been somebody who just is some guy instead of some guy who a minor movie star admittedly but a movie star nonetheless an action star Mm -hmm. you know clint eastwood couldn't have played this role and yet he might have even been slightly better Right, And it sucks because he's given it his all and the movie is interesting. But I guess I won't say much more about it than that. He guns right. down a whole bunch of people, becomes a celebrity. Nobody knows who he is, but he becomes the vigilante killer. And it's in the news and everything. And it's it, it it's it has a ton of crappy 80s sequels put together by the Canon film group that are all garbage. But this movie actually is sort of a thoughtful movie, if you don't mind living through the horrors early on it's it's really weird and plus two of the thugs who commit this crime on his family's unforgivable crime are played by two super famous looking people one of them is jeff goldblum (laughs) Goldblum. who like is he's like a foot taller than the other two guys and so he keeps (laughs) having to kind of contort his body to get in frame you know what i mean That's funny, but what his, their actions I in the film the action, is,
1: the, 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 I, yeah I um, are
2: terrible. So yeah. it's, it really is horrific and really gross. So just heads up.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Lot, but we'll like, never talk
2: about Death Wish in any other context. It's Definitely. important to set a movie like that aside from it. It's, it's a franchise, you know. It's important to set it as completely aside from the films that followed because it, it's nothing like those. It's, it's a significant film of this era, I think.
1: Yeah, I'm seeing, see, um, but Washington. Okay, yeah, no, I was gonna say it says that there's a there was an urban legend that Denzel Washington uh, mm. made his film debut in no. this, but he I'm looking here, no, it was not him.
2: No, nope. he, he wasn't even acting that.
1: then. Yep. Um. All right. Um. Okay. Next up, there is, is a guy who
2: looks. I watched out for it. There's a guy who looks a lot like Denzel Washington that pops up in it. He actually yeah. looks more like. Uh, john david washington but nevertheless you go if you're looking for it you're like wow that does look like him just like the guy who looks like michael bolton in dune man he looks a lot like michael bolton yeah he's just some mexican guy but (laughs) you can see why people thought that might
1: have been him yep uh these next two films uh we'll go through quickly because actually they're not available to 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 watch anywhere unless you can find old DVD versions of them. Cool, good.
2: Videos. We're running out of time, so let's do it. Um,
1: next, uh, it's 1971's Little Murders, which is the film adaptation of the Jules Feiffer uh, play, kind of a black comedy. Um, and I, I, I thought this one was um, interesting and worth bringing up. Uh, it's directed by Alan Arkin. Um, Written and directed
2: by Alan yeah, Arkin, re- right?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, well, based on the play, but adapted, play, yeah. it, this was his... He this masterminded is, um, this project. Yeah, so. yeah. and um, yeah, Elliot Gould. Um, uh, um, yeah, just it's this sort of black comedy uh, discussion of um, of marriage and relationships. It's uh, it, it, and then it's weird that there's bringing a boyfriend home to, to dinner and, and, and they live in like this incredibly, uh, you know, tough neighborhood where lots of murders and shootings and stuff are happening. Um, and. Uh, lots of
2: social commentary and lots, lots of dark relationship satire. Yeah.
1: Um, and, and then uh, the next movie I, I want to bring up is 1975's smile, which um, I, I just have these vague remembrances of from, uh, from seeing it's a it
2: beauty pageant movie, right? At least yeah. I knew that much when I went yeah. to look it up.
1: It's a beauty page stars, Bruce Dern. And it is, it's just this, um, it's just as a this... smarmy
2: beauty pageant host, which is yeah. usually Bruce Dern's something, even if he's smarmy, something more earthy than that. So that's, that intrigues. I've never mm-hmm. seen this, but that definitely intrigues.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's a satire comedy of beauty pageants and, you know, everything that goes into, you know, beauty. A lot of, you know, a lot of things about that that have become tropes um, about beauty pageants. But I just I sort of there aren't many
2: beauty pageant movies that are straight up taking the beauty pageant part seriously. They all are commenting on them in some way, even back then. So
1: that's not surprising. Um, So, uh, yeah, so it's um, it's. It's interesting. I, I found it and I, I have remembrances of it being um, funny and, and, uh, and everything. It could have just been that I was a, you know, young guy and there were little girl you near know, girls in it. And, you know, I'm, <laughs> and I was like the same age as them. Uh, <laughs> so when I saw it, so uh, who knows? That but is a weird next,
2: way to see one. Cause it's about young people. I guess you're saying I didn't get yeah, that it, part.
1: I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's up pat- to about kids. Know, I mean, ish kids, teenagers kids, but like teenagers yeah. yeah they're teenagers in a beauty pageant um gotcha. so um yeah um, well, that, but-
2: that definitely puts them i mean that sharpens it quite a bit more in fact when you do mm-hmm. when you when you do that as opposed to just 20 somethings or something
1: yeah so interesting. um but the next movie that we're going to talk about is uh, is one. The only of my thing f- worse
2: than a beauty pageant is a beauty pageant with a bunch of underage people in it. That's even <laughs> that's even grosser and even more, right. you know, more. Uh, <laughs>
1: I was watching. Uh, I, I was watching an old Mister Show uh, episode, and it was an episode objectifying.
2: Was sorry, yeah. the word I was trying to find.
1: There was an episode of uh, Mister Show, and the sketch that they were doing is was a fetal be- beauty pageant. <laughs> Right. so it was the pregnant the next obvious step and, yeah and then they're, they're just doing the sonogram <laughs> on there and, and they're judging the sonogram on the you know and the beauty of the, of the of the fetus um
2: they found a way to make it even worse good for them that's impressive
1: yeah. uh the next one that we're talking about is one of our favorite films um and uh it is 1972's the candidate
2: yeah, and I don't think, even though we love this, The Candidate is one of my 56, 10 out of 10 star films. It's a near perfect movie. I don't think it benefits from a whole ton of discussion, so we'll just give you the setup and you guys can, if you should seek this out if you can. It's yeah. also not a, it should be easier to find than it is, but for some reason it isn't. Michael Ritchie, who had worked on uh, campaigns and stuff, and the writer, whose name I can't remember. They knew each other, and they made this movie sort of based on Mm -hmm. these real-life experiences they have. Robert Redford plays the son of a famous old governor, I want to say, of California. And he's this sort of uh, environmental activist. You know, He starts out as this kind of ex-surfer guy who wants to keep the beaches nice and cares Mm -hmm. about very liberal things. But because he's got the look of a superstar, which obviously Redford has, and because he's got this pedigree... This uh, this political player brilliantly played by Peter Boyle, my, my favorite Peter Boyle role of all time, of which there are many, many really, really good ones, uh, which um, are not Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, he's outstanding, and they sort of whisk him away, and he goes on this journey of going from being this guy who's going to do it his way and you know is willing to do this. It's a senatorial race, right? Joel, I believe.
1: Uh yes. Um, I was just—it is the son of a of the California governor. Yeah, and yes, and it was—it is the, uh, the senatorial
2: senator- race, yeah. and it—he—it's a movie about that, and it's a movie about. I don't want to say how you lose your soul in it, but how, because I really don't feel like at the end of this movie, this guy doesn't have a soul. Like he, 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 his soul is not compromised by the process, but everything he stands for and believes in and his whole way of relating people. And like, it's how the process sort of kills all those things that are naturally you and turns you into an operative, turns you into a part of the political machine that has to behave and talk and, do things in a certain way. And that is, that's almost more interesting than somebody who's just corrupted by the process, which I think is a rather dull thing that, and a less Mm -hmm. believable thing. It's the process that's corrupt. It's not Mm -hmm. the guy in this case. And of course that's perfect for Redford because he, for us to stick with him, he has to maintain this kind of integrity throughout. Bill McKay all the way with Bill McKay or a better way with Bill McKay. There's this fantastic scene where they're driving him from one event to another and he's just sitting in the back of the limo completely loopy and exhausted and repeating his his little catchphrases <laughs> over and over and over again. And the two guys in the front are kind of like very subtly glancing at each other and wondering if they should do anything about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's fantastic. It's a political film, truly, but it's not about the politics of the era it's, it's about the political process of the era and even though it's very dated and very early 70s it's it it's you, you the ring of truth cries out in every scene it's just fantastic film so the candidate check it out get it out on in high definition get it out yeah. in its original aspect ratio please warner brothers get that give that film some love I'm sick yes. of watching cropped, crap, hard to see versions of it. Treat it better, and maybe it's streaming in a nice version. That's possible. The Warner's always making broadcast versions that it doesn't necessarily release to the public. But
1: um, you know, now that I'm thinking, about it, I want to say that it's available on HBO Max. Uh, that
2: so- would fit. It's Warner. It's all the same company. I have company. to see
1: um, if what what if it's uh, been you know. If it's been, uh, it should have been somewhat restored. At all. Yeah. Um, I'll H- again, HBO
2: is very careful about not putting, you mm-hmm. know, quote, full screen, unquote versions of things on, you know, they changed, uh, we talked about it. They, they fundamentally changed from earth to the moon to make it stream more streaming friendly. So if it's on HBO max, check it out. Maybe it's a good version. It says
1: says in HD on it. So they they go, go watch that film. That's
2: the best film on this list. Probably.
1: Uh, next up is, is actually another really good film though. Uh, 1975's the man who would be king.
2: Yeah, I won't talk about this too much either, but it's this is a really classic movie that you should have heard of and really maybe should have seen by Mm -hmm. now. John Huston directs uh, Kipling's The Man Who Would Be K, starring uh, Michael Caine and Sean Connery in a couple of of uh, British Empire fellows who decide they're going to go rogue and that in this backwater place that they are, they should be able to set up shop wherever they want and rule. Yeah. (laughs) That's their plan (laughs) to just, you know, reap the rewards of being slightly more advanced and hopefully more clever than people. But of course, (laughs) no story Mm -hmm. that starts out like that ends that way. It's a satire. You kind of in a light way because it 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 wants you to deal with the story seriously. So it's not it's not a zany crazy movie, but it has this weird comedic energy to it for what is essentially a large scale widescreen adventure film. And Kane and Connery are fantastic in it. They I don't they're really a good team. I mean, really, yeah. really good. And John Huston's camera, you know, African Queen, I get it. There's a, a Victory. We don't want to look past that. But <clears> his <throat> his his eye for large-scale filmmaking was never greater than it is in this movie. Uh, it, it's just visually amazing. And it's a film I saw when I was a kid on VHS. The sides lopped off, just... You know, and I didn't get it. It wasn't what mm-hmm. I thought it was because I didn't, because I neither are clever enough or mature enough to understand the humor of it, which was off-putting to me. And I was robbed of all the sweeping, adventurous visuals and stuff, completely robbed of them. So I didn't really get transported either. And just as an older person, it's it's a it's a really really good film. So,
1: yep. Um, all right. Next up is uh, 1970s, "The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes."
2: Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder. Who I only like one other Billy Wilder film, so I'm not what you'd call a Billy Wilder fan. I don't have really? patience for. Okay. I don't. I don't. I don't like Marilyn Monroe movies. I don't like crap like that. I, I find that to be vacuous, and I feel the cynicism when I watch it, even though Billy himself is a very he, his life philosophy lacks cynicism and that yeah. keeps his project sort of buoyant. Um, but it, uh, this was a movie, he made this to be, this was a, like going to be an old late 60s style roadshow presentation, a three-hour film that had three, that had basically four different segments in it that were adventures from, uh, the, the gimmick is, um Watson has just died in however many years in the 20s or something and he had this in his will that these lost tales of Sherlock Holmes that he had locked away in his footlocker in some storage facility were, were were not to be released to the public until both he and Sherlock were gone hmm. and they unleash them and these are the stories and the stories are great but they're not terribly flattering to Sherlock Holmes. They're the ones that didn't go right is the is the gimmick. Robert Stevens, it was supposed to be Peter O'Toole and somebody, but it ended up being Robert Stevens and Colin Blakely, who were both fantastic actors. Um, but not people you would pick to star in a late sixties epic, you know. Mm-hmm. The sad thing about this film was Wilder, you know, finished shooting it, took a little break while they were you know, he oversaw the editing, like of each scene, which is the important part of editing. But as they were prepping it for release, he came back and they ch- 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 cut an hour, almost an hour out of it, forty some minutes out of it, two yeah. entire sub stories, and they left in one little sub story and then the what the basically the main story, which is sort of Sherlock Holmes solves the the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> which that intrigue if that doesn't intrigue then you know uh blakely's great he plays a little bit of a bumbling watson which we've seen before but he doesn't play sort of the fat clueless watson he's he's super into the ladies he's just got he's a it's a fun take on the character that's really cool and both blakely and stevens have fantastic chemistry together they're both pals they were theater buddies they'd been in i don't know how many stage shows together tons of them and wow. when wilder couldn't wilder cast stevens but when he couldn't find uh, watson a couple people turned him down uh, you know couldn't think of anybody it was uh it was stevens that chose blakely and it was a super smart choice because it's a really fun take on the character the likes of which really isn't in any other version and Wilder says it was his most lyrical film, you know, it was supposed to have an intermission and all that. It's supposed to, it, he was very, very proud of it. And it sort of killed his love of the movie business when they chopped it up. It's still a very, very good movie. It hasn't been taken great care of over the years, but they found a, a a, a release print in very good condition and they've scanned it. And it's, again, it's, a, it goes along with the period widescreen entertainments that we're talking about them, traveling to them backstage at the Russian ballet and them uh, traveling to the highlands of Scotland to, to in the course of their investigation, Christopher Lee plays Mycroft Holmes. He's pretty Christopher Lee's a heavy hitter and you know, he's in a lot of garbage too, obviously, but when he's in a big prestige film, we've seen it in Lord of the Rings, stuff like that. I mean, he's, he's, he's got a real presence. He's very powerful and, I enjoyed it. I, it's kind of wonderful and I feel bad for what happened to it in it. One of the, uh, one of the segments that got cut, it it was found, but it doesn't have any audio.
1: Um, so they, they can never
2: put it back together the way it was supposed to be, which is a shame, but yeah, the,
1: yeah, the deleted, a lot of, you know, what, what, Scenes were found, were uh, restored when they did put it out on Laserdisc, and now subsequent um, yeah.
2: same, basically same restoration ported over to DVD or to Blu-ray.
1: <laughs> you brought up the Loch Ness. I'm just re- quickly reading this thing about. Be the careful Loch Ness. with what
2: you read on that. It's, it's a spoiler alert.
1: Um, I know what
2: you're talking about. The Loch Ness monster. That, uh, uh, what's the name of the guy? V- Wally Weavers. We talked about him when I talked about the Keep. Great old school. Uh, effects guy built this yeah, yeah. built this huge mock-up of the Loch Ness monster that they went out to shoot on location and on the very first night Joel what happened?
1: It sank
2: sunk to the bottom of Loch Ness
1: and then but I love that it was it was rediscovered um, in 2016 by an expedition uh, looking for looking the actual for Loch, Loch Ness monster, monster. <laughs> Which brings, that brings me a lot of joy
2: yeah, they found wow. it still sitting there well, I mean where else would it be? <laughs> yeah. Loch Ness is the problem with it is it's famously like a quarry it's extremely deep
1: mm-hmm.
2: like the ocean and anything that goes in there like it's just the depths of which you can escape to it are such that it keeps that sort of legend alive whereas yeah. it really has no reason to exist eventually they built a very, pretty cool prop actually that they shot in a tank somewhere of just the head but wilder said of the incident he said you know some people were freaking out and stuff but he goes all i could think when it happened because i saw wally and he was he was sitting there like he was starting to cry you know like he'd lost a relative and i could all i could think was i need to go comfort him (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. and that he was very calm about it because it was big set piece in the film and he just was like oh it's okay man like say that i get that sort of the really good artists that are spoken well of as people like Billy Wilder is have that innate sense of equaling out the room. You know, when, when I'm the crazy one who is having a temper tantrum and I'm having my temper tantrum, but when somebody else is, I'm suddenly very calm and very, you know, like I, I adjust to whatever the mood is. And when I saw this as frustrating as it was for me to see my big, Loch Ness sequence just completely go to hell in just a couple minutes in front of a hundred witnesses you know it was obviously devastating to Wally that it happened and I all I could think of was I needed to try and cheer him up and make him feel like it was going to be okay yeah and that made me feel like it was okay this is lovely (laughs) again I'm not a it's not that I don't like his films I just I'm just they're not my movies you know this is when you hear me rip and complain about old movies this is this is the kind of thing I'm talking about seven year itch and stuff it's like that's it's all movie star bravado and it, there's nothing human about it and I just can't get into it even though they're fun and pleasurable in their own ways I just those are not my kind of films private life of Sherlock Holmes is my kind of film so hats off to Billy and for an amazing career. And that should have been, he went on to make a few more movies throughout the seventies, but that this should have been his sort of look, I can do this too. And isn't it amazing? And it wasn't perceived like that at the time. And it, it, but its reputation has grown through the years. Thankfully.
1: Uh, next up, we're going to take a look at two films, um, from another, uh, British icon, Agatha Christie. Mm. Uh, the first one is 1974's Murder on the Orient Express.
2: Uh, wow. Murder on the Orient Express was much, much better than I thought it was going to be. I have to say that was a big, big hit at the time, mm-hmm. but I've always read, oh, you know, Albert Finney plays Herc- Hercule Poirot, in Poirot that, and he was a 34 year old guy and they had to age him up very subtle makeup for the era. They do a nice job of that, but that was always a complaint that he was sort of, Finney was sort of impenetrable and the all-star cast were, like it, like the movie was dull. same criticisms leveled at the Branagh remake from just, Mm -hmm. and it really, it is very much a remake rather than a re-adaptation. It it very much understands what that other film was um, in in ways. I like them both because neither of them did I get bored with and I watched this one the first one the earlier one after the more modern blitzy glamorous take mm-hmm. because say what you want about murder on the orient express by branna but it's beautiful i mean it is a gorgeous movie
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, that's and that's sometimes and
1: that's just and that's just his mustache
2: Just his mustache.
1: The widescreen. You need to see it in widescreen, if for no other reason than to capture
2: the the full scale of the mustache. (laughs) It's funny. Agatha Christie got to see this film and loved it. She was hated her film adaptations and refused to give the rights to them. And she gave the rights to this one because a guy who was a film producer at the time was the cousin of the queen, and he came to her home unannounced. And because of who he was, and because he asked really, really nicely, she yeah. allowed that to happen. But it really took royalty to come to her door. You know, she's a qu- quintessential English woman. You know, she's a—if yeah. you want to say Agatha Christie's obviously a, a an incredible English woman. She's beyond just. But at her heart of hearts, oh, you know, Duke the Duke of what's it, what's it wherever wants to turn my book into a movie. Well, who am I to Mm -hmm. say no to that person? That's kind of a fun side story. Lord Mountbatten of Burma. But the most amazing thing about it is it's directed by Sidney LeMay, who made Dog Day Afternoon, an American who made these gritty street stories or legal dramas and stuff. It's like, it's made by the guy who, how could he be the one that (laughs) has to do this? And because it is, there's, there's, I can see why it is boring, because you have all these crazy actors, Ingrid Bergman, Sean Connery again, Michael York, great, great over-actor that we love and adore. Um, You know, a parade of red herrings, if you will, all of whom play this material really, really straight. Even Richard Widmark plays it straight, which... I've never seen that before in a film. (laughs) That's Sidney LeMay's touch. He wants these scenes to play out believably. He didn't want it to turn into a cheesy, vampy, you know, thing. And it doesn't. And because it doesn't, some people say it's boring. I say, no, that's where the heart of the thing is. The film works because he keeps it all in check. He refused to have a wider train built to fit the cameras in it. He's like, no, we need to make it impossible for the cameras to shoot this stuff. You need to feel that claustrophobia when you're watching the movie, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they were brilliant enough to say, you know, even though this is a murder mystery, we want the score to be buoyant and adventurous, and we want it to celebrate the lavishness of the era, which also brings this whole different personality to the film that it wouldn't otherwise have. LeMay says that, you know, he doesn't think it's his best directing job, but he said it was necessary for him to do it. He didn't, he said he didn't think he could have directed network if he hadn't made murder on the Orient express, because it, it taught him so many things that he wouldn't have learned if he'd have stuck in his wheelhouse. Hmm. And I really, really like it for that reason. Death on the Nile. Uh, sorry, Joel, yep. if you had nope. a se- yeah. if you had a segue lined up. Nope. And nope, I, I did it. not
1: uh, just other than, other than clearly the success of murder on the Orient express
2: caused Death on the Nile to be made. Death on the Nile is also been made by Branagh, so he made a sequel too. So these things kind of go with those things. Um, that movie's different in It's Poirot, though. It's Poirot, right? They're both...
1: Yeah, but di- different Poirot... Poirot Peter, different
2: actor. Peter Ustinov?
1: Yep. yep, Peter Ustinov.
2: Um, and not on a train, on a boat. So that's... <laughs> Um, and, of course, the details of the murder are different. Death on the Nile is not nearly as good, uh, but it is go- It is pretty good. Directed by John Gillerman, who is a really talented filmmaker. Um, not a real celebrated one, but a real talented one. And, actually, uh, Gillerman's gone now, so uh, this didn't work before. But come to our Facebook page if you're watching this on YouTube or if you're listening to it on Google or whatever. Tell us your favorite murder mystery. Just put it in the comments section of this episode. And uh, first person to do that, will PM you, and we will give you a copy of the great 1984 Jungle Adventure with Tanya Roberts, directed by John Gillerman, called Sheena. Oh, Sheena. You get a free blue-gray copy of that. I'll pay for the oh. postage. It comes in a lovely slipcover that is a recreation of the video... Cassette of its era. Nice. I got two of them, and you can have one. I know you won't do this because you people suck. <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to say that either, but no. <laughs> when it comes to, please come to Facebook. Please comment. Please ask us questions. You're not the best, and you know you're not. So let's face it. Mm-hmm. Okay. We do appreciate every listener, but you just you're falling down in this department. Here, you can win a prize. A John Gillerman widescreen adventure that's not good mm-hmm. but is super fun at least so yeah. you got that going for you so I consider it yeah, uh, back did. to death on the Nile it's, it's just not as good Peter Ustinov's a little more fun I think than the stayed performance of Albert Finney but it's it's another all-star cast with way less big stars <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not as good a story with it's not it doesn't have as clever a solution. So you know it has all that, but it's a pretty good follow up, and that's why I will just mention it here since we're not likely to do a best Agatha Christie episode ever.
1: (laughs) Um, All right, well, let's talk about uh, these last two films. um, To to me, I mean these these last two films are pretty, um, pretty you know, pretty big films. I mean, they, they, they've stayed, they've had staying power. Mm-hmm. Uh, first up is, uh, Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland in Clute. Clute, which is often considered a, uh,
2: conspiracy movie. And it has a little bit of a, a tinge of that, mm-hmm. but Clute, I think was made when c- pre Watergate slightly like it. it it's not, it's not like the yeah, other. I mean,
1: it's seventy-one, yeah. So yeah, it's long not long like day, the so.
2: other uh, conspiracy movies, which are very much influenced by that. It, it, it. There's a mystery to it, but what it really is is this sort of amazing character piece that's made in and amongst a rather complicated mystery. If that makes any sense. This is my favorite. Uh, we talked about uh, They Shoot Horses, which is stunning, but this is my favorite Jane Fonda performance because I really feel like this is the movie from this era where you, where there's no, somehow there's no, uh, edifice piled on her in any way. There, it, it, This, you really feel like you're, I don't want to say this woman is Jane Fonda, you know, she's a Model and a prostitute, and that's not her necessarily. But the, I really feel like we just get to the, the heart of who a person is when watching this performance. It is a performance, but uh, it's so natural and just so incredible. And Sutherland, too, who's just is a different sort of guy. This is the this is a inspector guy who shows up because this murder happened in this woman's life but he's, he's, it's hard to explain. He, this dude's like weird. He's from, he's from not, he's not from New York city where she's from the very glamorous and the very sort of skeezy underworld of New York. He's from upstate New York or Ohio or something. And he's like, um, sort of this, he's this weird conservative born again, Christian guy who finds himself while protecting this prostitute falling in love with her. And and she is, while the murder in her life didn't seem to really knock her off her track at all, this weird dude who's like nobody else she's ever been around, yeah. even though he, to us he's like every guy we've ever known, <laughs> makes her just view relationships and stuff, just complicates her life in this incredible, amazing way. This is, movie was made by Alan Pacula, who made All the President's Men, who made uh, Parallax View, oh, who made Presumed Innocent. Really, really, really good mystery and suspense director because he really does f- keep his focus even on the human element. Even though this film was shot by Gordon Willis, when, when I talked about Parallax View back in my lone solo episode, May It Never Happen Again. Mm -hmm. Um, it, the, it, his camera work is amazing. This film's shot with like, you know, um, big epic cameras, like the cameras they used to make, um, uh, the man who would be King. And yet it's these weird interiors and stuff, which when you've got a sole person in their New York apartment and you're shooting it on a big Panavision camera, what you end up with in every shot in the film, and this is true of Parallax View to the same degree, is dead space. You end up with negative space where nothing is happening. Mm-hmm. And you have to f- fill that space with something. Or or in this case, you have to make that space, the emptiness of it, profoundly part of the storytelling. And that's what Willis and Pacula pull off in this film. Yeah, It's one of the most beautiful widescreen films I've ever seen. And I... Held out ever watching it because it it's been treated abysmally on home video. Uh, this time last year, the Criterion Collection released a fully restored, just gorgeous widescreen print of it, which I assume is streaming someplace uh, because wow, it's what? a recent thing. Um, it's an amazing movie. I was amazed by it. I'm not very. I'm not super impressed by the conspiracy part of it. Really, I think that part's yeah. sort of dumb. It's, it's the way these people affect each other. And it, like Joel said with A New Leaf, it's the way the film keeps it real with you, the audience, and doesn't resolve it easily, even though it resolves it satisfyingly. Uh, that's a miracle, I think. It's really, really cool. I, I couldn't be more impressed with a movie. It maybe This movie I gave 9 out of 10 stars. I don't know that the star rating yeah. is important, uh, maybe, it, maybe it is kind of perfect. Maybe I'll come to believe that I got, I came to it, you know, movie from 71. I came to it in here in 2000 winter of 2020, which is a weird time, mm-hmm. but I love it. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it. it
1: won, it won Jane Fonda, her Academy, uh, it won her the Academy award Rightly um, so, and and rightly so uh th- this the the thing that I'm reading here it calls it Paculo's Paranoia trilogy. That's maybe a better term. Yeah. So just uh, you know little um, um, ch- change of word. Uh, um, maybe it might be a distinction without a difference, but it's yeah it's it starts
2: um, with her going to a, a casting call for models for this for some sort of print pictorial, you know, so mm-hmm. a higher class gig than. She gets some of them because she's gorgeous in it, but she, it's, it, she's a model who makes ends meet by, by, uh, prostituting herself and the way she compartmentalizes sex and that sort of thing is she, the scenes that she has with her, um, shrink that are Mm -hmm. amazing monologue scenes and storytelling scenes by Fonda. It's just really, really stunning work. It's, it's Um, amazing.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a terrific film. Um, yeah, and you can you can rent it on uh, Amazon Prime um, for like three bucks to to watch it. And, I and it's can't really nice. I can't
2: recommend it higher. Enough. I mean, it's definitely very seventies, but the artistry involved in making it, and yet, d- despite how visually amazing it is, and how it's got all these incredible ideas, um, unlike Parallax View, which I, as you know, I'm a huge fan of, but unlike that film, which is was written by not quite as clever people who were really trying a little too hard it has that has a lot of silly crap in it um despite it being visually powerful this this film doesn't it's got some high mo- tension moments but it doesn't cross that line into it, it's there's it all it's always you always sense the danger nearby but because the laid back detective and because the prostitute kind of refuses to deal with the reality of that mm-hmm. aren't dealing with it. You're kind of not dealing with it either. It's very clever. It's very, very well done. So Clute, Check it out.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. Now the next movie Clute is the
2: name the movie, oddly st- crazily is the name of, uh, sorry, Donald Sutherland's character. Yeah. His name is Clute. It, yep. That film movie should not be named after that character. It should be named after Fonda's character. Correct.
1: Correct. It should be called Bree. Right. It should be
2: called Brie. I mean, maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know. Clute is a great name. I, that, I've never yes, met yes. anyone named Clute. Yeah. Clute is that movie. So in that way, they found a thing, a, you know, a proper name that is now their film forever. And every time you hear that, assuming it's an actual name of a person, if mm-hmm. you meet somebody named Bob Clute, <laughs> You're immediately gonna th- even if you haven't seen the movie. I would immediately think of the yep. movie.
1: <laughs> Bob, Cl- I look forward to someday. I mean, his name's John
2: when- Clute, I believe, but it's yeah. you know, it's when you have a weird last name, you got to have a as generic a first you gotta name
1: as You got to go by Clute. Possible.
2: Yep, you go by Clute. You go by Clute. Um,
1: but uh, the um, and Bree
2: is- also that's again everything about this film fits. Bree is perfect. Yep, it's the perfect uh, name for this character. It's a name that in '71 or in whatever. 1950 whenever this chick was born would not have been a popular name maybe in france mm-hmm. but not here Bree in our generation became a very popular name i don't know that it is anymore but i knew plenty of breez. um yeah. you just that that's a unique thing and that it, they it's all everything in the film is carefully chosen so i i like that about it
1: um it's it's a cool film um, and I do look forward to someday doing when we uh, doing a deep dive on Donald Sutherland because that is he's a, a really unique actor. All he's and...
2: got to do is just die, <laughs> Joel.
1: I knew I knew you were going to say that, and it still made me laugh. Um,
2: oh yeah, that was um, you setting up the pins for me, huh? I kind
1: I kind of thought I was like, well, I, I bet Ryan will say something just, like this, and but just kick the bucket,
2: Donald, and we'll do your show, Jesus. Ugh. Jeez, done.
1: Um, all right. I don't know I'm how we
2: would do a show like that. It, Donald Sutherland is not Ian Holm. Donald Sutherland's been on uh, two hundred movies. Yeah, he's really, really tough to try and narrow things down. He's as good mm-hmm. as he ever is in this. So yeah. I, I, you know, to get back on track, we 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 pray for his good right. health. We don't want him to go anywhere, but That's you know, true. he's still doing good work now. Yeah. Uh, but he's an interesting guy because he's a Canadian who has connections to Hollywood and Canada and England. So the films that he did, especially in this era, a lot of English films are amazing. If he were an American, he couldn't just go to England and say, Hey, I'm in your movie now. Yep. But because he was Canadian and because Canada and England are, you know, tight and because their union rules and all that are copacetic, unlike Hollywood's rules or it's not really Hollywood's fault. It's more the Washington DC's fault, but it's nevertheless, it's, he's had an amazing career because of that. Yeah.
1: Um, all right. Now this final film that we're going to talk about today, uh, you would think it's about John Houseman and, uh, it, you know, by popular culture would teach would show you that, or would tell you that it's about John Houseman and being a brutal law professor. Um, <laughs> it is. But, <laughs> You're saying
2: it's not about that.
1: Well, I mean, it is, but it's not John. It's not a movie about. No, it's, not John, John it's not a John Houseman
2: f- it, yeah. based film, yeah. man.
1: Um, but it is. Uh, it it is um, uh, the Paper Chase, um, starring Houseman. Um,
2: wasn't really an actor, you know. When he was a kid, he was a stage actor, but he and he wasn't even really a film guy. He was a, a stage director and sometimes playwright. And he was an extremely accomplished stage director. But not in a necessarily New York and Broadway way, although he had his moments there. He was this... He was a... Joel will appreciate that. He was a regional theater guy who would sort of travel Mm -hmm. around. And he had connections with various, you know, uh, civic theaters and stuff in America and did all this work. Um, I don't know whose idea it was to cast him in the paper chase. Joel's right. It's not really about him, but... (laughs)
1: That it might as well be. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's that's we, what you remember from it,
2: It's one thing for us to say now, everyone. It's not just this because it isn't just that, but that's the stuff that holy cow. And even today, it, it's of the domineering teachers that we've had, in all of our movies and stuff uh, are the aloof father figures that we've had. <laughs> This guy t- still pretty much takes the cake. It is a t- towering performance by Houseman. He's incredible in it. He. It's not just because he knows everything and not just because of the immense pressure of Harvard Law School where this story takes place. That is put on the students, the competitiveness within with each other, the... Uh, you know the this legendary guy from this crazy bygone era because this is early 70s and these students are some of them are you know from rich families some of them are from poor families it takes all kinds but -hmm. they're all sort of weird in their own way they're all sort of weird laid back early 70s you know 20 year olds they there's a hippie culture nature to them all even though there's there's no beads or what or Vietnam protests, but there's still this, you know, you want to get high, kind of chill out way of dealing with things. And so when that that contrasted, who's the main actor? Timothy Bottoms.
1: Yep. Yep. Timothy I Bottoms. get I get my
2: Bottoms brothers, which there's like <laughs> six of them. I get them mixed up a little bit. Shout out to Joseph Bottoms. Black hole. We love you. Um, and also uh, other other Bottoms is who will be named later uh tim is he's the he's the alec baldwin of the bottoms (laughs) i didn't plan that that just came out of me sometimes i enjoy myself i apologize for laughing at my own joke um (laughs) but he is that's he's the he's the guy he's the big guy he did these he, he didn't he's not a superstar or anything but he did these handful of where he was the main character and he, it, they were big films. Paper chase was not some massive runaway hit movie. Cause it could never have been that, but it was a big hit for what it was at the time. Lindsay Wagner plays his squeeze who also turns out to be the niece or the daughter of this professor in question. I can't remember which daughter, maybe
1: um, give me a moment. Uh, daughter.
2: Yeah. Daughter. And it's the movie's hilarious. Cause this guy worships this dude and fears him like he fears the devil And, and he's dating his daughter, unbeknownst to anybody. And it's not one of those, oh, they all show up at a dinner party together. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's nothing like that in the film. I don't think the guy ever finds out that he's dating his daughter. Or if he does, he does it off screen and his reaction to it, we're not privy to internally. So... We're led to believe by the end of the movie that he never really learned this guy's name, even though he said it hundreds of times in class. Like these students, while they get the full professor experience, aren't really anything to him personally. It's a stunning moment, I think, if you know what I'm talking about. And it was an actor choice to say his name, but to look down at his seating chart to see what it was before he says it. It's... Give give the man his statue. Truly, it's just amazing. But Bottoms is great. Ed Herman's in it. Ed Herman's always a great. Especially, he's a great old aristocratic type dude these days. He was a fantastic young aristocratic type dude back in those mm-hmm. days. He's also in uh, our beloved Day of the Dolphin. Who's the actor? His roommate that is went on to play mean cops and stuff, basically for the rest of his career and serial killers. Read me a few names and I'll tell you uh, who it is. Uh,
1: well, there's um, Craig Richard Nelson.
2: Yeah, he's okay. good, but no.
1: Robert Lyddiard, uh James Naughton.
2: No, James Naughton's Correct. great in it, but no, not him. And Graham Beckel. Graham Beckle. That's who I'm talking about. Graham, this is my favorite Graham Beckle, because I. It's, Graham's a guy who I can't even imagine as a young guy, and yet here he is. And he's a guy who's so intense and kind of creepy and evil and all the stuff he does as an adult that to see him as this ch- totally chilled-out kid, is it's just, it's it's awesome. I love Graham Beckle in this film. I love James Naughton, too. Their, their study group is just this fantastic... Mm -hmm. mix of really neat personalities this is
1: beckle's first film
2: i believe it i believe it and it was his last as this type of person
1: yeah
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know but he's a great he's still a great actor but he's that hollywood found a niche for him that he's not likely to break out of very often and why would you when you're hollywood actor he's you know working for 30 years whatever but 40 years but he's great in it. Him and Bottoms have a great chemistry together. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. It had a spin-off television show. The television show was really, really good too. But the, nothing quite captures the 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 just the intensity of what it was to be a Harvard <laughs> law student,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or what it maybe still is to to a lesser degree, but
1: uh again it just made me think of another mr show sketch sorry just because it's been on my brain yeah uh there's a, there's one where bob odenkirk is it, it, the teacher uh it, it's um it's uh, michael mckeon at first playing a uh and he's doing a houseman like a, 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 a guy. houseman type guy and then he's like and he's like this will be the toughest course you'll ever take and then, oh, sorry. Oh, I need to step out for a moment. Sorry. And he steps out to take a phone call, and he's like, "Uh, you, you, Mr. Mr. Barnes, please come up and continue in front of the class." And Bob Odenkirk gets up there, and he's like, "Uh, uh, look to your left, <laughs> and now look to your right. One of you will not be here at the end of the semester, and the other will be dead." <laughs> And everyone's like, wait, what? 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, John
2: Houseman. You know, look him up if you don't know who we're talking about. Somehow, it's cool if you don't, but look him up and you'll. Well, kinda, yeah. And then he went on.
1: It. He went on to you know he, he played a,
2: just the same character for a whole bunch in of like movies commercials
1: afterwards. and TV and yes. film. Yeah, I mean, it became a little cottage. Yeah, we make
2: money yeah. the old-fashioned way. way. we, we earn I mean, it. That's yeah. his most famous voiceover commercial. You're absolutely um, right. Yeah, so that's Hausman. He was an, already an old man when Hollywood found him, and he was an old man for the next ten years, and then we lost him. But it, mm-hmm. this, it, it, despite the fact that this character is a cliche that you could do in a Mister in a Mister Show episode, twenty some years later, almost thirty years later, and people would recognize it, shows you sort of how iconic a performance it is. But it is the the other characters the student characters that hold down the story
1: mm-hmm.
2: Paper Chase is a near perfect film it's a, it's a dra- it's just a drama there's no special category yep. one of the students doesn't die. there's just nothing in it like that but it, it it's a, it's just a fantastic film that I believe any open-minded viewer will watch and get carried away by It's yep. also a great time capsule and like Clute it's another intimate story shot. With widescreen cameras, and so that captures the sense of scale of these students against the sort of uh, Harvard, New Haven, sort of the New England backdrop, which is a big character in the film. And I dig it. Yeah. All right, folks.
1: Well, that is our trip down into the cinematic sounds of the '70s. Uh. You got clue. You got the candidate. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna have a party. That's right. Inviting all of All right, folks. What do they got to do to win Sheena? They got to leave a comment of uh, what their favorite um,
2: My favorite mystery is. I don't know. Just is, yeah. leave a comment yeah. saying, hey, I want the leave- Blu-ray. I don't care. <laughs> just prove to me that you listen to this. Yes, that's right. And, and uh, <laughs> I said, leave your mystery. I was going to say murder mystery or Agatha Christie, but it's like, mm-hmm. let's just you know what's oh, your yeah. favorite john gillerman film mine is uh, king kong 1976 mm-hmm. uh, it, i don't care just some reference so that i know you listened and and be sure you want the movie i mean
1: yeah if none know, of you
2: want this in your life then that's cool i get that yeah, people don't collect like movies like me anymore i
1: remember queen of the jungle and i remember it being fun i remember it being a lot of fun
2: i've never seen I it i'm going to watch it next week
1: <laughs> yeah um, with yeah, one I, lucky I, listener woohoo yeah. play your cards right you could do a live watch along with ryan
2: No, I'm not doing that.
1: Uh, okay, then never mind. It's got Tony um,
2: Robertson in it 1984. I'm not sure everyone'll be watching that for the first time with strangers.
1: <laughs> That's true.
2: I want to elaborate, but it just certain things might happen. It's hard to say.
1: That is true. There's that. Yep. Um all right folks, uh thank you so much for joining us for no this show week. next
2: week so enjoy this one and yep
1: you got enjoy you got two and, uh, weeks uh, to rob, leave us a comment <laughs> rob dunkelberger feel better my friend we love and you we, yep well, we love you have a good week everybody
2: bye everybody am i supposed to play something here i am keep waving joel yep i will keep waving i'll keep waving too when i stop okay. waving you'll know it's okay to stop
0: Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out.